Turn your copy of God's Word this morning to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, before we look into the Word of God this morning, I want us to take just a moment and, and pray. Um, last night about 6 p.m., Retta Haynes' father went on to be with the Lord, and so I just want to take just a moment to pray for Retta and her family, for Bill as they are down in Alabama uh, with them. So let's, let's go to the Lord this morning in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning rejoicing, worshiping you, the great and mighty God. Lord, we come celebrating what you have done and sending your Son. And God, we come thankful that the reality is that because Christ came, we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our every temptation, every trial, every sorrow. And so God, this morning we come to you on behalf of our sister Retta, ask you to bring peace and comfort and joy in the midst of sorrow today. Lord, may she know your peace. And God, as we look to your word, we pray that, Father, you would bless us as we study your word, as we consider the depth of the riches of your glory and the meaning of the truth that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God, we ask that you bless us now. In Christ's name, amen. I, I can't remember, I may have shared this with you in the past, I just don't recall, but you know, personally when I think back on Christmas Day, I'll never forget Christmas 1987. Christmas 1987, we gathered around as a family and our tradition was we would come in and all the gifts are set out and we would come in and just devour them. It looked like this just pandemonium of, of paper flying everywhere and we opened all of our gifts, and I opened all my presents, most of which I already knew what they were because of my superior investigative skills prior to Christmas Day. But we got to the end, and we were all done, and my dad slipped out of the room and walked back in carrying a big box. And I opened that box that I had not seen before. They got me on this one. And it was a Nintendo Entertainment System, NES. Yes, exactly, right? I mean, I went ballistic. I went crazy. Now, I, I got some great gifts that Christmas. To be honest with you, I don't recall one of them except for the Nintendo Entertainment System. It was just better. It was better than all the other gifts. And it overshadowed all of them. All the, all the other gifts paled in comparison to that one. It was a good day. It was a day that's etched in my memory. Today we, we come, and I don't know what your tradition was this morning. I don't know what it looked like. I don't know what you've done the last 24, 48 hours. I know Christmas Eve and Christmas Day are special days, days in which we spend together, days in which we celebrate the coming of our Lord in various manners. Every home looks different. Every experience is different. But today as we come, I hope that we'll consider the reality that no matter what it is this Christmas season that perhaps brings you and, and fills you with joy, that Jesus is better. That's been, our, that's been our focus. That's what we've examined. That's what we've looked at. 
this Christmas season, that Jesus is better. And perhaps the greatest display of this, I believe, is today. I believe the, the greatest display, that the truth that Jesus is better is the very fact that he is God incarnate, that he is God-made flesh. He is God, he is man, fully God, fully man. And so we come and we celebrate the incarnation today, the taking on of flesh by the eternal word, the Son of God, that he might live among us, he might dwell among us. And so we're going to turn to John's gospel this morning. In our hearing of the word, you heard a portion from Matthew, you heard a portion from Luke. Matthew and Luke both deal with kind of more of a historical account of what happened, the pronouncement of the angel, the occasions, where Mary and Joseph went, what it looked like. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, you have what's called the the prologue of John. It's the introduction of John. And John begins his gospel with a very theological explanation of the incarnation, a very theological explanation of the coming of Christ. As we look at it, I want you just for a moment to try to wrap your mind around this whole idea that God took on flesh, right? That it was God who came and saved us from God, right? We have it in Romans 5, the statement that we are saved from the wrath of God, right? That's what we're saved from. And so if you can think for a moment, the, the Old Testament the astounding thing is the, the, the prophecies of the Messiah and the Old Testament saints, as they looked forward to the Messiah, they were not looking forward and expecting God himself to come. They were looking forward, they were looking forward to one who would come and, and save them and free them, right? That would come in victory. But the idea that it would be God himself taking on flesh and coming as the Messiah, that just would blow their minds. That's why you have throughout the Gospels, you, you have this sense of awe and amazement with the people because they're trying to wrap their minds around the whole reality that this one who stood in front of them, this one, Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, was not just a man. He was not just a man. Do you remember the most common way he referred to himself from our study in Matthew? Does anybody remember He refers to himself most commonly as the Son of Man. Not a Son of Man, but the Son of Man. It's pointing back to Daniel 7. It's a clear uh, confession. It's a clear affirmation that he is God. That he is God in the flesh. He has come to save his people. The Word made flesh. The Word of God. The eternally existent Son of God who comes and dwells among us. This is astounding, absolutely astounding. My my goal this morning is really threefold. One, I, I want and I hope that just for a moment we can step back and kind of gaze upon the reality of the incarnation with a sense of awe and wonder. That we would be struck with just a moment that we would go, wow. And, and I hope that, that, secondly, we would simply understand its importance, that it has important influence and impact and meaning for our lives today. 
It's not just some kind of uh, old, dusty old theology that we leave to Scripture, or we leave to books of theology, or we leave to the pastor's office, but it's something that we come and we understand the importance of the Incarnation in our lives. And that because of this, we would be leaving, thirdly, gripped by the reality that Jesus is better. That it's not just an Advent series. It's not just something that sounds good to say that Christ is the true and better. But we are gripped deep within our hearts that Christ is better. Let's read John 1, 14 to 18 this morning. John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace. Grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. This morning, we're just going to look at verse 14. And as we wrap up this series, this this focus in our Advent season that Christ is the true and better, I want you to to see this in verse 14 as we look at the truth of it. I want you to see how Christ is the true and better. You remember in the series, we, we focused on four men in the Old Testament who served as types for Christ, who, who correspond to Christ, but Christ excels upon them. He improves upon them. He is the true, the rightful one. He is the better one, supreme we see them in each or each of them in this verse. First of all, we see that Jesus is said to be the one who the word became flesh. He is the true and better Adam. Christ came as a man, the first man Adam gives way to the better man Christ. Jesus is the true and better Adam. He took on flesh that he might walk in perfect obedience to the Father that something we could not do. So Christ, the true and better Adam, the Word became flesh. He came as a man. The second thing we see is that we we talked about him being the true and better Isaac. Look again, verse 14. What do we see here? Jesus, he comes. he He is the only son from the Father. He's the only son. He is the true and better Isaac. He is the true and better only son. Now, it's interesting in, in Greek, it's monogenes here, monogenes, the only begotten. Some of your texts may say that, the only begotten son of God. It's the same exact word that's used in Hebrews eleven seventeen. In Hebrews eleven seventeen, we read this, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. Okay, so the same word is used. Isaac is referred to as the only begotten of Abraham. Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. Jesus is the true and better Isaac. He is the true and better sacrifice. 
We see, thirdly, that Jesus is the true and better Moses. What do we know of Moses? What did Moses bring? Moses, God gave the law to, to bring it to the people. And we see that referred to here in this passage in 114 and then again in verse 17. Right in verse 14, we see that Jesus is full of grace and truth. In verse 17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was powerless to save. Jesus was powerful to save. Jesus is the true and better Moses. Jesus is the true and better David as well, isn't he? Where do we see that in verse 14? David's reign was temporary. David's reign was finite. Jesus' reign is eternal. Why? Because Christ is eternal. Who is he? The word became flesh. Who is this word? Well, John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word is eternally existent. The word is God. And the Word's reign is eternal. The Son's reign is eternal. While David's reign was finite, Jesus' reign is eternal. David's glory was a mere glimpse of what it looked like to be a king. Jesus' glory is shockingly beautiful and magnificent because he is the true and better king who reigns eternally. We see that Christ is the true and better Adam the true and better Isaac, the true and better Moses, the true and better David, all in this one verse, verse 14 of John 1. And so let's look this morning at this awe-inspiring incarnation of the internal word. Incarnation, if you're not familiar with that word, simply is referring to the fact that God became man, that the word took on flesh, that Christ came. That's what the incarnation is. So I want us to look at this awe-inspiring reality of the incarnation. And I want to look at it in three ways. There's three statements that John makes in verse 14 that are important for us that we need to think upon. I don't really think that any of us in here can wrap our minds all the way around what this means and the beauty and the depth of it, but we would do well to think upon it this morning, this Christmas day. So he makes three statements. The first one he makes in verse 14 The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. Four simple words that make perhaps the most glorious mystery stated. It's an articulation of the mystery of mysteries. God came as a man. Augustine said this. He said, man's maker was made man, that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. How do we wrap our minds around this? The incarnation is the turning point of human history. The turning point of human history. Last night, had we been here, we we looked at the the story of Scripture. 
the account, the plan of God's redemption of man. And we looked at the reality that in this moment, the incarnation is the moment in which the course of history changes. The great victory was where? The great victory was on the cross and the resurrection. But the moment that everything changes is the incarnation, when God comes as a man. We see this in redemptive history. We see it even in the Gospel of John. We look at at John. We don't have time to do all this this morning, but if you just sometime we'll go back. In in verse 1 through 16, the word Jesus is never used. He's always referred to as the Word, the eternally existent Word. Verse 14, the incarnation changes everything. It's the, the Word became flesh. And then after that, once we start working our way in down to verse 17, we have for the first time this reference that His name is Jesus the Christ. And for the remainder of John, he's referred to as Jesus, not as the Word. The incarnation changed everything. The eternal word of verse 1 becomes the incarnate word of verse 14 and ultimately in 129 becomes the Lamb of God who is slain to take away the sins of the world. We talk about the messianic secret in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the synoptic gospels, the idea that something's happening and Jesus says, don't tell anyone yet. Don't tell anyone yet. It's known as the messianic secret. There is no messianic secret for John. John gets right to the chase and he writes and he says, listen, you need to know that the eternally existent word became flesh and he was the lamb of God who came to save us from our sins. That's why he came, to save us, to do what we could not do. He took on flesh. He came as a man. He walked among us. It's a foundational truth of the Christian faith, his orthodox truth. We cannot deny the truth of the incarnation, else we fall into heresy. It's been done. Church history is littered with moments of heresy because people would deny the incarnation. They would deny that God became man and dwelt among us fully God and fully man. That's why in John, John writes later, when he writes his letters in First and Second John, he actually equates confessing the incarnation, the reality that God became man, he took on flesh as a key mark of the believer. If you do not confess that and hold to that, John would say you are not a believer. You are not a follower of Jesus. 1 John 4, 2, he says that every spirit, how do you judge spirits? How do you know someone is right and true, not the Antichrist, not an ungodly spirit? He says that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Later in 2 John verse 7, he says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such, one, such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. If you do not confess and acknowledge and believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God come in the flesh, then John says you are not one of God's children. It's a serious doctrine to believe. It's why the New Testament saints wrote of it, declared it, celebrated it, praised it, lifted it high. Romans 1.3, Paul says he was set apart for the gospel concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. He writes again in Galatians 4.4 that in the fullness of time when it had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. 
In Philippians 2, 7 and 8, we read that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself even to be obedient to the point of death. In 1 Timothy 3, 16, Paul confesses and celebrates. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Where does he start? He was manifested in the flesh, Paul says. Hebrews 2, 14 and 17, we read that since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil. Then we read in verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You know how John starts his first letter? Listen, listen to how personal this is. He says, that which was from the beginning, it echoes John 1.1, right? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon, we touched with our own hands concerning the word of life. The life of was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John says, listen, the eternal word of God, I'm writing to you today, and I want you to know I have heard him speak. (laughs) I've watched him do miracles. I touched him. I I hugged the Son of God. I rested my head on his shoulder. I saw him weep at the tomb of Lazarus. I watched him sleep because he was tired. And then I watched the joker stand up and rebuke all of creation, and creation obeyed him. I've seen this. He was manifest among us. (laughs) He was displayed. And I saw it. The Word made flesh. Fully God. Fully man. Wrap your mind around that. It blows me away. (laughs) It blows me away. J.C. Ryle wrote this in his commentary on John. He said, There is unquestionably much about this union of two natures in one person which we cannot explain, but we must be content to believe. We, we can't, I can't explain it to you today. But I'm content to believe it because He is God and I'm not. He has saved me. And I worship Him. The Son of God took on flesh And in doing so, he did not give up his deity. He was fully God, fully man. Very God, very man. Truly God, truly man. There was never a point at which his deity consumed his humanity, and there was never a point in which his humanity was such that his deity had to be set aside. He was always, ever, fully God, fully man. Come, behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the king. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity, 
In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended and took on flesh to ransom us. May we stand in awe of the Word made flesh. Now the second thing he says is what? He says the Word became flesh and second and it, he dwelt among us. Or perhaps your translation may say he tabernacled among us. You remember the Old Testament? How was the presence of God manifest? Where was the presence of God? Where did he dwell? In the tabernacle. God, in his glory, his Shekinah glory, dwelt in the tabernacle. You have these beautiful pictures. You have Exodus 25, 8 through 9, where Moses is instructed how to build the, the tabernacle. He says, And let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle on all its furniture, you shall make it. So they fashion this beautiful tabernacle for the presence of the Lord, and then you skip over to it. You can look at it later, Exodus 33, 7-11. It just describes the reverence and the awe and the glory that the people have, the awe that they step back as Moses walks into the tabernacle, and they see that the presence of the Lord is there, and the people stand at the doors of their tents in awe, looking at the tabernacle. But now you have in John 1 that the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. The very presence of God which was in the tabernacle in the Old Testament is now manifest in the flesh through the Son as He walks among us. He dwelt among us. He lived with us. He walked with us. He tabernacled in, us, in our midst. He didn't sit removed as some transcendent, distant God looking on from the distance. Now, he is the imminent God who came and lived among us. He came to us because we could not go to him. He tabernacled among us. And the third statement he makes here, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. We've seen his glory. This statement has kind of messed with my head for years. It has been a statement that I just read and I step back and just go, I, I don't know. Because <laughs> you, you have this passage in Exodus 33. Do you remember? God says, I'm going to go before you. And, and Moses says, good. Because if you don't go before us, we don't want to go. Like, your presence is how people are going to know we're yours. We want you to go before us. And then Moses asked God something. Do you remember what he asked him? He asked him a question. Listen, Moses said, please show me your glory. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, God said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But you shall not see my face. 
my face shall not be seen. Moses just wants to see his glory. He says, God, just let me see your glory. Let me see it. And God says, oh no, (laughs) you will die. Then we come to John 1.14 and we read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. We've seen it. As the Son has fully revealed, to him, revealed Him. So He ends the prologue. He ends that section we read in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. But He, Jesus, has made him known. The one whose glory is so incredible, so majestic, so great, that you cannot live when you see it, has come and dwelt among us, taking on flesh, and we beheld his glory. We saw it. (laughs) It's remarkable. We, we have this unveiling of the glory of God throughout John. In John 2.11 at the wedding of Cana is when Jesus reveals his glory for the first time. Later in the Gospels, you have the transfiguration. You remember the transfiguration in, in Luke 9.32? You have Peter, James, and John that they get a glimpse. They see his glory. They're forever changed. So Peter, when he writes his second letter in Peter 1, 16 to 18, he writes, testifying, he says, we were eyewitnesses of the majesty of God. We saw it. Like we saw, we, we had glimpses of it. It was remarkable. Read that passage later. 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18. The Word became flesh. He dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. This is not some quaint Silly, feel-good, hallmark-laden Christmas story. This is the awesome, reigning, eternally existent, omnipotent, sovereign, unrivaled God taking on flesh and walking among sinful men that he might save us from our sin and his wrath. And we, sinful men, beheld his glory. Merry Christmas. That is beautiful. And if we stand in more awe of a Christmas present under a tree than we stand of that truth today, then we need to check ourselves at the door. We need to take a step back and say that gift is nothing compared to this one. It's nothing. Praise the Lord that we're here to worship on Christmas Day. Because there is no place I'd rather be than in here singing of our Savior, God with us, Emmanuel. Come, thou long expected Jesus, come. What difference does it make? What difference does it make? Quickly. It means first salvation, reconciliation with God, our maker is possible. It means that while no mere man can satisfy the wrath of God towards sinful man, Jesus Christ did because he was fully God and fully man. Colossians 1.19. In him all the fullness of God 
all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or on heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Salvation is possible because Christ came. The second difference it makes is that it means that Jesus is our only perfect high priest. He's our only perfect high priest. We read that in Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a perfect, I mean, sorry, become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Listen, if Christ does not come, if there is no incarnation, then you sit today and I sit today and we come and we pray and we pray on our own merit and our own accord. We have no one interceding for us, but we come and we pray according to our deeds and our sinfulness. But because Christ came and because he saved us, we come and we have one interceding on our behalf, our perfect high priest. We have one that has shed his blood for us once and for all he's not doing it over and over and over again he did it once and for all he's a perfect high priest he's lamb of god third difference it makes is it means that we have a perfect example for living a life of godliness what does it look like to live for christ what does it look like to live for god to walk in godliness to pursue holiness it looks like living like christ we have a perfect example 1 John 2.6 says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Philippians 2, 5-11, we have this ancient hymn. And what is it? It is a calling for us to look to the example of Christ and to model ourselves after him. Mark Jones, in his book, Knowing Christ, that you'll study coming up in Sunday school, he writes this, After the title, Christ our Redeemer, that of Christ, our example, is most precious to Christians. We are not told to imitate a beggar in order to exemplify humility, but rather to imitate a glorious God. That is the example of humility that we're to imitate. The fourth thing it means. The incarnation means that Jesus understands our needs, our struggles, our temptations. We just read Hebrews 2.17 a moment ago. Hebrews 2.18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. We have one who understands our needs, our struggles, our temptations. We pray to the one who knows and gets the suffering we experience. He understands the loneliness you have. He understands the frailty of the body. And on that note, the fifth thing it means is that it means that our bodies have worth and value. The very fact that Christ came, that the Word took on flesh, means that our Physical bodies have worth and value. There is intrinsic worth to them. Jesus took on flesh and yet he was without sin. So he did not take on flesh and then become sinful because flesh is sinful. That's not what it says. He took on flesh and he was yet without sin. Because flesh in itself, the body is not evil. It's not something we just think little of. The body is an important and a good part of God's creation. 
Yes, our bodies may be marred by the sin that dwells within them, but the body is not inherently sinful. Again, I love what J.C. Rouse says about this. He says, let us see in our mortal bodies a real, true dignity and not defile them by sin. Vile and weak as our body may seem, it is a body which the eternal Son of God was not ashamed to take upon himself and to take up to heaven. The simple fact, or that simple fact, is a pledge that he will raise our bodies at that last day and glorify them together with his own. Isn't that a beautiful thought? We live in a day that does not value the body. But the body is a good part of God's creation. The incarnation demands that we gaze upon Christ with a certain measure of awe. Demands that we behold this babe in a manger with wonder that he was no mere babe. I, I don't know if, if any of you are reading the, the Advent book from J.C. Ryle this season, but today's writing, he comments on the faith of the wise men who come and they see Christ and they worship Him. They worship Him. Not because of anything He spoke or did. Because they knew He was a King. Who He was. And we consider that the Word was made flesh. It beckons us to worship. It reminds us that Jesus is better. It reminds us that He is high and exalted. We looked this Advent season, the candles there, and Scott reviewed them this morning as we began, as we light, lit the Christ candle. But we, we looked at, at one candle for love, one candle for joy, one for peace, one for hope. The incarnation reminds us, shows us, reveals to us that Christ is the better David who showed us perfect love for the Father. David may have been a man after God's own heart, but he was a man nonetheless who was sinful. Christ was the perfect man who loved God the Father perfectly in all he did. We see Christ that he is better. He's the better Moses who grants joy of freedom, not from an earthly ruler, but from the ruler of, the bondage of sin, that we have joy and the freedom that is ours in Christ. We see Christ, the better Isaac, who reconciled us by his blood and gives us peace with God. And we see Christ, the better Adam, who restored hope for mankind that is lost in the fall. Christ is better he brings better peace love joy and hope than this world can ever offer and the world does indeed offer it to you it will offer peace if you do this or have this it will offer joy if you acquire that 
who offer this is what love looks like. But Christ is better. And Christ will not disappoint. You had great joy this morning. Many of you opening presents. Tomorrow you wake up and it's another day. Material goods are fleeting. They may even break by the end of the day. Christ won't. Christ is the eternal Son of God. He is better. So in the midst of the fun and the joy and quite honestly, probably a little chaos of Christmas Day, See? <laughs> right? In the midst of it, right? We live in a day it's so difficult to have a moment of silence and peace. We're going to end today doing just that. We want to give you just a space today on this Christmas day. The rest of your day will likely be filled with laughter and friends, family, I don't know what you're doing, cheesy movies. But in this moment, let's take a moment just to quietly reflect and think upon what it is that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory. Think about for a moment, whatever it is, Fill in the blank. Jesus is better. Let's think about that for a moment. I'll close this in prayer.